I'm very delighted to give a brief introduction of our speaker tonight, Dr. Christopher Harmon, whom I've known, unfortunately not been able to have him seen in a number of years because while those of us who live in Virginia think it's paradise, at least until last week when it hit eight degrees, uh, Chris defected and went to Hawaii where he is a full a professor, he teaches, uh, he's a specialist on terrorism, full professor at the Daniel K. Inouye Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies. But Chris previously held two different chairs at Marine Corps University and so taught here at Quantico for quite a number of years. Uh, we share an alma mater, uh, the Claremont Graduate University, uh, where Chris received his PhD under uh, quite extraordinary professor Harold Rood, uh, who educated several generations of strategic thinkers. That has borne fruit in, in not only Chris's teaching, but his writing. He's the lead author or editor of four books on terrorism and counterterrorism, including A Citizen's Guide to Terrorism and Counterterrorism, and Toward a Grand Strategy Against Terrorism. Tonight he's going to be talking about his, his new book, The Terrorist Argument, Modern Advocacy and Propaganda, and that's available for sale outside, and Chris will be happy to sign them for you after his talk tonight on the subject of the terrorist argument, modern advocacy and propaganda. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Chris Hahn. Thank you everyone for coming out and uh, I'm much, much looking forward to your questions and discussion after this uh, talk. Um, I am here as an independent scholar uh, and I'm here to offer fruits of research uh, that was conducted at many past periods of my life and then sort of assembled when I held a chair in Quantico from 2010 through 14. I had a wonderful co-author on a couple of chapters, so if you do get the book, the one on, on Al-Manar TV of Hezbollah and the one on ISIS media is by my good friend uh, Randy Bodish, uh, who's a Navy captain and a PhD uh, himself. Uh, we were honored then when Brookings Institution Press wanted to do the manuscript and they've done a very nice job with the presentation. I'm, I'm grateful to them. Let me give you three of the sort of general conclusions that underscore the book and then I'll go through some interesting case studies just as, as sketches. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to see because oddly enough, there are theorists who still challenge this um, terrorism really is purposeful and calculated as an activity more often than not. Uh, it aims at, at, at psychological impact and it uses the power of ideas uh, to project an image and to communicate. So there's both ideas and force. There's intimidation, there's communication. Uh, it aims at our, at our bodies, it aims at our brains, and it aims at our nervous systems. Second, um, the, the ideas and the arguments advanced by terror organizations matter a great deal. Uh, ideas may kill. Uh, the proponents of these ideas and the authors of militant propaganda <clears throat> tend to see their, their violent organizations as constructive, not just destructive. 
And so they attack, uh, but they also advocate. And the forceful political character of, of terror groups uh, compels them to compete in the political arena and to advertise, in effect, their, their political ideas. So there are plenty of times when we sense from reading something that they're masking some part of their purpose or that they're being mendacious, but they are involved in public explanations about what they do. And I think we need to pay attention to that. Number three. Number three was, uh, I think we've had too little awareness of just how many media they use. Um, uh, there are different modes of communication, and, and our book, The Terrorist Argument, tries to show how, how communication study fuse well with terrorism studies, and, and especially in managing the diversity of media which these groups attempt to exploit. The good ones, the successful ones, I mean by that, the insurgents, the terror groups that know what they're doing, tend to be multimedia actors. So, you know, you've all seen those old pictures of the IRA murals, and those are pretty interesting, and those are didactic, and those are important. And uh, modern uh, mural painting has been done by Sendero Luminoso. Um, I have some, some pictures of that uh, in my backup slides, if you like. Uh, but books, pamphlets, uh, websites, radio stations, uh, you see it all when you begin exploring the range of terror media. And so I want to emphasize how simultaneously they, they work in these fields. So a couple quick examples. Uh, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, very adept during their long run, which ended in 2009. When they began building websites, and they were among the first insurgent groups to do that, they didn't say, well, this is an update on radio, so we'll quit thinking about radio. They kept their radio going. And Tamil radio was accessible now on the new website, so they simply doubled up. They didn't retire the older technology. Another example, the American White Power Organization, the National Alliance, used to be based rather close to here in West Virginia. They had such a range, it was an interesting range of propaganda materials. They had uh, white power music they sold. They sold books. The, the catalog of their books was really quite interesting and quite worth studying if, you, if you're interested in political violence. Uh, they did lots of things, not just the Turner Diaries, which became infamous as a source of terrorism in a number of places, not just Oklahoma City 95. Last example, New People's Army in the Philippines a group that's often dismissed now, I continue to think they're pretty important, they're, they're convinced about Maoist ideology. They always have been. And one of the icons within Maoism is Lenin. We've just had the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution, and believe me, NPA published a large, glossy, expensive uh, pamphlet uh, to commemorate the Bolshevik Revolution. Its ideology is some of those iconic postures in art, uh, students of history uh, would recognize a lot of the iconography, if you like, in that propaganda display. Well, NPA does broadcasting. They have a bi-weekly newspaper I try to read when I can. They publish on the web. They do a lot of video material. Uh, and this really 
I think is not attended too much, but we should notice it. After all, the founder of New People's Army is a professor. Always watch out for those guys. <laughs> Though the professor's students include a certain man named Rodrigo Duterte. I think, you, I think you've heard of him. He once studied with, with uh, Sison. Okay, so that's sort of the, sort of the intro. Uh, this is where we'll start with a chapter from the book on radio. Uh, this uh, brilliant and very original man um, was not an Algerian, but he is famous now as a kind of icon of the Algerian revolution against the French, in, uh, which, which succeeded in 62. His education was a formidable. He was a psychiatrist, and he devoted part of those talents to justifying violence by the Algerian insurgents, some of which included uh, terrorism. Now, FLN, the National Liberation Front, as many of you would know, was, was not Salafist. In fact, uh, if you had that kind of inkling, you were either forced to kind of moderate it or you might be shouldered aside by FLN. They were nationalists, they were socialists, they were, they were not uh, kind of like contemporary uh, jihadis. Well, they published a, an eight-point program in 54. They stuck to it, and eight years later, they had completely defeated France and forced them to withdraw. For their purposes, it was a wildly successful uh, revolution of a nationalist kind. A remarkable thing to study, and there are uh, no end of good, good books about it. Their media was internationally minded, and it was diverse, and it was good, and they used diplomats, and they used foreign friends like uh, Franz Fanon. They had radio. This fellow didn't broadcast for them, but he sometimes wrote for their newspaper, and he would write broadcasts for, for the radio, although he didn't deliver them. Uh, he's done a fine essay, uh, which is really forgotten, and uh, I'd like to recover it a bit, and, and so the chapter goes on. It's, a, it's an essay on the voice of Algeria, and it's in a book called A Dying Colonialism, uh, published by Franz Fanon in 1959. Radio at the time was the brand new thing, the brand new thing. I mean, radio in Algeria was dominated completely by France, and it was seen as a, a tool of colonial power by the French and certainly by guys like Fanon or the, uh, the FLN. Um, fascinatingly, transistor radio moves into that part of the world right about the time of this rebellion, 54, 55, 56. It's, it's, a, it's a simultaneous. And so it became possible within the FLN if they went to this kind of technology uh, to be able to communicate with their cadre in the cities and, and more importantly, in the countryside and with, with people who might be illiterate in the countryside. So they published El Mujahid, for which he wrote a great deal, uh, but they also <coughs> went over the airwaves, which allowed them to reach people who maybe couldn't read or didn't read very well. Fanon becomes uh, extremely influential. Uh, his argument is that uh, colonialism, by definition, is a matter of force and subjugation, that it dehumanizes, that it represses, that it makes full freedom and, and human development impossible, that it must be resisted, and, and why not in a post-World War II era of, of self-determination. And so for him, a violence and radio were kind of were thought of in similar ways. They both would, would be used to instruct, and they were both used to, to intimidate. 
Um, the Wretched of the Earth is his famous book, but as I say, the, the, um, the, the other essay in uh, uh, this, this book is more, is more interesting to me as a tool of radio. Now, alternatives are always present in terrorism. It's a choice. It's a strategic choice. And here's a man who didn't make that choice. He was uh, part of the rebellion. He was a full-fledged nationalist. He became head of the provisional government, but he was used by the movement as a kind of window dressing, so far as I can tell. And it's because he was not an extremist. He was a militant nationalist, but not the type to go to plastique bombs in, in, in Algiers cafes. And so Ferhat Abbas, who also did his own kind of broadcasting, uh, was an example of the kind of choice this movement made uh, and it was a choice that we can pin down as being made right about 55, 56, in part in the Sumam conference in, the, in a valley in, in Algeria where the guerrilla chiefs gathered. Uh, they made the cold calculation that they weren't doing so well hitting French soldiers and that it was time to choose a different category of victims. There was a commander who said that one corpse in a dinner jacket is worth more than 20 in uniform. And that kind of thinking, in more subtle and educated ways, came through with people like Fanon and through with some of the writing that they did. And it was the matter of, of, of tar targeting changed in 56 and thereafter. Uh, and the effects are visible to you. You know the movie, The Battle of Algiers, everyone's seen it. And that's actually a pretty good tutorial on how some of this work and thinking went on. Um, now, others have had their own radio stations, so ISIS has this one, or, or did, and you notice multiple languages and all, and it's actually very common, once you start thinking about it, to find the names and a little detail sometimes about guerrilla radio, about the sub-state actors' adoption of this kind of technology. Well, the next one is also old school, maybe more old school. Newspaper. The Irish Republican Army's roots can go back, you can count as well as I, you can say it's about a hundred years or you can say it's far more, but uh, people became famous, uh, Emmon de Valera and James Connolly and folks like that for favoring Irish freedom and unification of the island vis-a-vis -vis British interests. The IRA strategies have varied over time. They've always had a strong propaganda arm. They have, of course, done guerrilla warfare. By that, I mean against martial targets, not the same thing as terrorism. And uh, they've had a good strategy of working with friends, as in our country, uh, very successfully. So the policy has always been pretty consistent, and that was for a unified Ireland. And then their strategies were varied in the ways that uh, I've mentioned. Well, one of them was a kind of propaganda effort. Uh, this is an example of a very good newspaper, which I, I took for 10 years and found that I learned a great deal from studying. Uh, they had a number of papers, and there was one that kind of expressed both IRA and Sinn Féin both. Uh, and uh, the Irish people was uh, very valuable. Um, over time, they did other papers. This is just one format. The same paper changed a bit over time, so there's a later header. Uh, and uh, they're boasting in, in this one of, a, of an ambush. Uh, this is from uh, the uh, 90s, I guess. And then uh, further examples of uh, parts of the paper. Here's a 1992 issue, uh, section called War News was common. 
They were clever. They did uh, a spread of, of things. They did propaganda based on culture, history, current news, uh, some easy topics like uh, the uh, imperialism of the British, which all their readers would enjoy. But they also overtly covered their own violent attacks. And for example, they loved to boast about the economic damage their attacks did. They would tell you how many millions of pounds they think they just cost with the bomb in Manchester, the bomb in London, uh, whatever it was. So it, it, was a, it was an interesting paper for lots of reasons. Here's another page, one of those murals, and you see by 94 they've begun to start thinking about what all these peace talks mean. And the paper shows a kind of ambivalence. They've got a foot in each camp as to whether these talks will lead anywhere and whether in fact we should be settling our affairs by talks. So the issues continued to arrive at my house. They sold things so you could buy videos about what they were doing in the field or uh, uh, various uh, other historical aspects of things. They had a library in which sold both books and uh, other things and uh, were in effect uh, a extremely important and influential paper published in New York City <clears throat> and reaching out to the diaspora, uh, people who were Irish, people who were interested in Irish affairs. Uh, they were intending to create, and I believe they, they seem to have, they, they were intending to create that sense of community that a newspaper will create. Uh, when Alexis de Tocqueville was here, he noticed these Americans just have thousands of these things, and they were often centered around a community, and they have the effect of building community. Uh, and uh, terror groups or guerrilla groups can <coughs> approach things the same way that an independent newspaper might in a community, touching on diverse themes. Um, the legacy of this sort of effort is interesting. Uh, there are plenty before and plenty after the Irish people. It's defunct now. It quit to somewhere around the time of 9-11. Uh, but in older days in our country, there were, for example, scores, literally scores, of anarchist newspapers in the 1890s, 1900 period, some founded by emigres, some founded by guys who'd lived here for years, uh, expressing the anarchist ideology and an approach to government. And there were others, uh, of course, uh, similar publications in, in newsprint form. So the Weathermen had these. Um, lots of guerrilla groups have had these. And, um, and in fact, uh, they're always looking for grabbing your attention, they're looking for communicating, they're looking for uh, continuing the ideological approach. Uh, Lenin had a paper, he called it uh, Spark. Um, decades later, you can look at Mao Zedong and you can remember his phrase about a spark starting a prairie fire. Uh, the Weathermen in the United States then have a publication in 74 called Prairie Fire. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of continuity of, of views on the value of a newspaper. And as Lenin said, it isn't just what's on the page or just what you see. There's also something about that community of writers, editors, and circulators who create a paper and make it effective. Uh, and that that builds a kind of little Bolshevik cell all of its own. And so there's uh, results in reading something like this, but also uh, in producing it. On to the next medium. Uh, the, one, <clears throat> the one I chose for this chapter is a little unexpected, maybe. Uh, it's simply the human voice. 
We tend to forget sometimes the strength of, of, of oration, although we all know orators that we like. Uh, we forget how important sometimes uh, substate actors, orators are. This gentleman was the one who used to be a professor of English uh, in the Philippines, and he's part of the challenge that agrarian communism has made to democracy in the Philippines. You probably have Filipino politicians and historical figures you admire. Uh, mine include uh, Ramon Magsaysay, who beat an earlier attempt at uh, Maoist communism in the Philippines, and Cory Aquino, who I got to see in our Congressional Gallery in 1986, absolutely spellbinding to see her triumph uh, election that year in the country and, and her speech to the joint session. Um, but there are challengers to that vision of a, of a democratic Philippines, and this is one of them. He's an ideologue, he's adept, uh, he's smart, and he's been in the business of leading this, this party and its army for 50 years. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the founding of the party and the NPA army. Uh, that army used to be big, it's not anymore. They're down to maybe three to 4,000 people. Uh, the Huck-Balahap rebellion occurred up here and was most important there, but you see NPA presence is surprisingly national, which is uh, important for a communist organization. It should be both national and international. They're not in Luzon only. They're spread through some of the other islands and uh, it's interesting to see them here in the South, which we often expect to be Muslim rebellion, and there is some there. NPA is strong there, too. So you have democracy. You have Islamism in modern forms. You have New People's Army Maoism, all fighting in that southern part of the Philippines for authority. Well, Sison, uh, who I showed you, was a man of many talents. Uh, he was a pretty good speaker, but he's a very busy writer. He still turns out books almost every year. He gives interviews. Uh, he creates music albums because he likes to play. Some of the other communists of older times in the Philippines also were musicians. He is. Uh, he works from Utrecht, where he, has, uh, he frequently lectures. And he has been, in fact, a vocal uh, and uh, important proponent of Maoism all these years. Um, he travels some where he can. He makes satellite broadcasts. He has just started a new, uh, a new political front. Uh, but in his tradition, I think the, the most interesting thing about the way, uh, the way they proceed is not all that media stuff, uh, but it's the good old-fashioned human voice. And I brought along a testament from one of their agitators who does uh, sort of quiet guerrilla work uh, in the outback. There's a description, uh, this goes back a few years, uh, in a historian named Greg Jones. And he's met someone named Tibbs. And this woman is an agitator for New People's Army. And uh, Jones, a journalist and, and writer, was so impressed. And this is, these are his words. After 17 years in the countryside as an NPA guerrilla, Tibbs bore the signs of great physical hardship. A scar on her neck was the remainder of a goiter operation, the legacy of years of poor nutrition. Emaciated, she weighed barely 100 pounds. Ulcers prevented her from drinking coffee and tea and restricted her diet. 
Her arms were scratched and scarred from long hikes through the Philippine jungles, her hands calloused, skin leathery. I first met her late one evening in June 1987, reading and writing by a dim light, a homemade lamp in a peasant's house. We met several times in the next year, sometimes in remote guerrilla camps and villages, sometimes in Manila. The intensity, energy, and sheer exuberance she radiated, whether huddled around a campfire with her comrades or leading a revolutionary sing-along in a trendy Manila cafe, always amazed me. Despite her frailty, Tibbs could walk for hours over rugged trails as nimbly as the peasants whose lives she had embraced. But she was more at home delivering a lecture on the inevitability of a communist victory in the Philippines, and she was as fiery a speaker as any rebel I ever encountered. I found that really a, a compelling testimony. And so when we see the videos and the songs that are done on, on multimedia by Communist Party of the Philippines today, um, I often think of her as sort of one of those archetypes of, uh, of peasant rebellion, which has been such a feature of the Philippines. There are some of them in training, and there's one of their song sessions. The videos are full of this kind of, of work. Uh, you can find these on the web at things like philippinerevolution.info or philippinerevolution.net. And it's really uh, often very compelling stuff. Well, next group and next media. Um, television, what an interesting thing for a sub-state actor to attempt. So we have Hezbollah, which is formidable in many ways. It's interesting to consider how now they're three and a half decades old. And uh, the so-called uh, Party of God is known for taking hostages from places like Germany and America, uh, but also for social work, uh, for all kinds of media, uh, for terrorism in contemporary times in places like Burgas, Bulgaria. Um, it's an organization that uh, is important for lots of reasons, including a remarkable political strength within Lebanon. In fact, I would suggest that Lebanese sovereignty is completely compromised by the existence and power of Hezbollah. Well, they have a TV station called The Beacon, and they've been busy for many, many years. Uh, here's one series of frame shots from uh, their TV. Um, it's quite, uh, it's quite remarkable, the, some of the uh, artistry and the colors and all that they show. Uh, we have uh, this kind of screen, which uh, has many things that are sort of an evocation of the uh, rock throwing there at the top left. Uh, the, the lovely frame with the single horse at the bottom, which is also a favorite of Al-Qaeda propagandists. Uh, they do this kind of work on television all the time, and some of it's pretty good. Uh, this is a, a screen series of a little girl, uh, I don't know how old, seven, nine. Um, she's telling us in a screed that uh, she didn't write, but she sure does deliver in an animated way. You can see it on uh, YouTube and things. Um, uh, Jerusalem is captive. Um, o Muslims, Palestine is calling you. Jerusalem is calling you. Beat the drums of jihad. Um, the slumber has lasted too long, uh, it says down there on lower left. One of the classic arguments in terrorist propaganda that 
the so-called good people, the so-called moderates are merely slumbering. Uh, they're somnolent, they're missing history. It's time to awaken, it's time to get going, it's time to do the work of, of the God in this case. And uh, Almanar as the beacon tries to, 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 to keep that spirit going. They have lots of other kind of propaganda. The British press once covered a remarkable theme park built for children, which uh, is probably very effective, given what uh, young boys like to go see, for example, uh, by way of uh, military equipment. And uh, nobody mocks uh, Hezbollah's performance in the field, do they? Uh, because they're extraordinarily good. Uh, so um, television is important, and um, Lots of groups do it, and of course, most of them don't have an Iranian sponsor or the money bags to do it themselves, right? But they still can be adept at getting interviews on television, or they'll do videos which are accepted by a mainstream TV, and that lends credibility. Uh, or sometimes they have done short bits, so 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, and they'll sell it commercially. Uh, so they'll, they're able to place it on a cable network, for example. Uh, so they've taken uh, lots of approaches. And you can't ever forget simply the good old interview. Uh, because uh, a, a, uh, there's a great book, uh, Memoirs, by Ingo Hasselbach, who's a neo-Nazi, who explains that the, the media are always such suckers for a Nazi uniform and a good march and a couple of gestures and all, that if you just marshal up a couple of your friends and get them in uniform and get down to some appointed place, you can be guaranteed coverage for your organization. And if you're lucky and you're smart, you can maybe get paid for that interview too. Uh, so there's uh, lots of ways to approach TV uh, where you don't have the budget that uh, Hezbollah has. Um, well, this is uh, a book. This is about a book because we don't tend to think of terrorists writing books, but a lot have. I think that uh, this must be one of the most important books in the early 21st century, The Call to Global Islamic Resistance. Now, there are many of you who know a lot more about Islamic resistance than I, Norm Sagar among them, plenty others, and you may have a different opinion. But I think uh, this man, al-Suri, is really important. Uh, he's a paradox. I can't tell you I know he's alive. He may not be but he's been active in the field for decades, and he showed that range we've identified of media. This man has done classroom lectures. He has sat in a house around a little fire with a few people or out in the field teaching. He's been in big lecture halls. He has done videos. He has done libraries of videos to cover long parts of a training regimen. Uh, he has been working overseas in places like Spain in different times. He's helped run a newspaper. He publishes himself. Uh, so when he did this book, which is 1,600 pages, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a ultimate work by a man who's been very, very busy all of his life. Um, I think that the um, chance to see him uh, now and then, as some photographers have, is, is kind of special. Uh, Peter Bergen recently published that picture from Tora Bora, for example. Now, the reason he's important more than just interesting is that al-Suri has laid out in his book, and he's done a number, one on Syria, one on Afghanistan, 
The call to global Islamic resistance lays out a kind of grand theory and an approach to thinking about resistance worldwide. He's extremely well informed and he spent a lot of time working on all this. And he sees a kind of strategic front which includes things like open warfare, the war of open fronts, uh, perpetual guerrilla warfare, uh, and what he calls uh, individual terrorist jihad. And um, I belabor that phrase because how many times have you been in a classroom or reading a book and been told by some social scientist that you know the, the term terrorism is such a value-laden word that you know we shouldn't use it at all because nobody can define it it's just a pejorative um, no that's always been false and there are books by people like Carlos Maragela that are very proud of the terrorism they've done and this is the kind of man who will tell you right up front that he does terrorism and that like bin Laden would say there's good terrorism and bad terrorism and you know which part he does and that there's nothing wrong with it and it should be deployed and it ought to be a regular feature of the contest uh, between uh, civilizations in effect. Uh, so Al-Suri has many invitations to terrorism and many of them were picked up by that Al-Qaeda magazine, Inspire. Nobody in Inspire was reprinted as much as this guy sitting on the right. Even bin Laden didn't get as much airtime in that Al-Qaeda magazine, I would venture, as uh, these reprints of speeches um, by Abu Musab al-Suri. Uh, so he's, he's very important for being a strategic kind of thinker, and he's important for openly discussing the need for terrorism, not just attacks on martial targets and such. Now, I said that lots of folks write. Let's totally change, change ideologies here. Here's an example of classic nationalism. We mentioned the Tamil Tigers. A long, long war through the late 70s, 80s, 90s. Really a remarkable war. Um, it did end in 09, but it's, uh, it's uh, a lot of people never thought it would. Adele Ann Balasingham gets her last name from her husband. He's the primary diplomat, or was, for the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. Her contribution, this is a typical sort of monograph that terrorists will produce, was exactly to show the role of women in the rebellion how they should think about nationalist ideas, what their roles were within the political and military forces of the Sri Lankan Tigers, and uh, what you could contribute as a girl, as a woman, uh, in the fighting field. And uh, this is one of the pictures that uh, turned out in the, in the, in the book she did. Uh, and uh, they've captured a, an armored vehicle there in, in Sri Lanka. Uh, it's extremely important to know that uh, people like this are involved. So uh, a lot of people might study or write books about Prabhakaran, the commander of all this, but there was a diplomatic side by Balasingham, and there was the side that, in, in, that, uh, that, that, that enhanced the roles of females in the rebellion uh, by the wife of. I understand that uh, Miss Adele Ann is uh, not only still alive, but she's doing quite well in Australia. Um, most of the others who are militants in the movement uh, haven't fared um, quite so well. Now, on the theme sort of of, of publications, uh, here's one from uh, ISIS. 
And similarly, it gives you the cultural, political, and martial laydown for what the woman ought to be offering. Now, they, unlike uh, Ella, uh, Adele Ann, don't exhort women openly to compete in the field against men with arms, but like Adele, they, they push the notion of cultural contributions that the woman should make to the family. So they're raising young would-be jihadis, they're taking care of their husband, they're managing home economics and social affairs, and they might be working at the local medical clinic. Uh, but anyway, this kind of monograph was designed by ISIS to show you what the roles of women ought to be. And you can read this, uh, by the way, in translation on the website of the Quilliam Foundation, if you like. Uh, so there are plenty of things, memoirs, uh, monographs, and everything in between uh, that uh, terrorists actually publish. So they aren't just sort of mentioned in books, they actually write them. Uh, one analyst claims to have found over 100 books, in fact, written by direct participants in terrorism, and I expect that may be true. Uh, so a word about that magazine by Al-Qaeda. It's now defunct. They had 16 issues of Inspire. The first one became famous with a couple of headlines like how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom. Uh, among the other headlines, here's a, by, here's a byline by this article. The author's name is Terrorist. So uh, it, can, it underscores my point about their utter uh, shamelessness about uh, indicating uh, the kind of targeting they're willing to do for their own reasons. Uh, they think that they're a, a kind of standard bearer for the revolution of a kind they want. Their, uh, their approach to politics was important. It was discernibly different from that taken by ISIS. The magazine is really intriguing, and I'm sure some of you, some of you have seen uh, an issue, which is good, because the issues disappeared, you see. Um, <laughs> ISIS ran, uh, Al-Qaeda ran 16 issues uh, of their magazine, and uh, it was destroyed in some of those airstrikes, and we don't know if it'll ever be revived, and, and maybe it will, and, and maybe not. It was a remarkable tool of propaganda, though. I give them immense credit. Uh, it was witty. It was intelligent. Even though it was uh, in English, it was usually flawless English and often American English pitched to readers like us or a guy in a cafe in Germany or Spain. Uh, uh, approaches to the young were common. They were interactive. See, that, that the radio can't be really. That newspaper I subscribed to for 10 years, I could write a letter to the editor and that may be the end of it. Interactivity was one of the great points of emphasis of Inspire magazine. So they had elaborate code in the back to show you how you could communicate directly with them and not get caught by the FBI or the authorities at whatever country you were in. They had a kind of jihad feedback sort of thing. They had letters to the editor. They encouraged you to get involved deeply in affairs, not simply to read passively. Uh, and in fact, uh, in some later issues, they were exhorting readers to send in proposed articles, for example. Uh, so it was a, it was a remarkable uh, magazine. The color and artwork uh, are, are, in some cases, um, really, really good. Now. Uh, ISIS basically just stole the idea. They, uh, no, there's nothing creative about Dabiq magazine or its successor, Rumaya. They took the idea of an electronic magazine which could be sent to you or me for free. 
which is a great thing about an e-zine, right? Uh, and it can be done in glorious color, but you don't have to pay for that, that expensive paper that you needed if you're at Life, at Life magazine or, or Fields and Stream or something. And so uh, Dabik uh, is, a, is a direct successor. Their ideological line is harder. They have no sense of humor at all. And they're willing to publish the most flagrant uh, things, almost as if to antagonize. So we said they want to intimidate and communicate. Well, their magazines are kind of like those videos you didn't want to watch on TV. They do a lot more intimidation than they do communication. And I think that, um, especially now that they've suffered so, so many reverses, the kind of common refrain we'll all hear is that they were foolish because they overdid the violence bid and they failed to win support politically. And maybe that's true, but I want us all to think about it. Because I would argue that something like Inspire, which was a more moderate version of an e-magazine, was very compelling and very effective propaganda. And they always threatened violence, but they didn't have to deliver right there on the screen. So there's a, another reason why the slave markets run by ISIS are wonderful things, um, approved by their religion. Uh, quote, a little quotation here about oh, what a fine thing it is. And uh, when you think that you have no more stomach for the sort of stuff ISIS runs, uh, here's a suggestion about how much Michelle Obama might have been worth in a slave market that they would run. So there's no bottom to uh, these guys. Now, one thing that they, uh, people like Harold W. Rude taught Bob and I was that you got to look at primary sources. Yes, Joe DeSouter, another student of Harold Rude. You've got to look at the primary sources. And here's a case where we didn't, I guess. This man led the massacre in November 15 in Paris. This man is shown here nine months before. He was in Northern Europe. He reconned his sites. He went to Syria, training, contact with ISIS, whatever. He gave these interviews, right? A couple of pictures. And then he went back and did just what he said. Uh, so I'm here in order to, you know, God chose me to, to terrorize the Crusaders, and uh, that's what we're going to do, and, you know, Belgium's in the coalition. So it's a remarkable case of where European policing and intelligence figures, and, and maybe all the rest of us, kind of failed to take advantage of an open source publication. They were risking all by publishing this kind of information and then sending him out on an operation, wouldn't you say? So I'm sitting in Honolulu with my star advertiser, and they run a piece of this picture, and I say, I've seen this guy before, because it was right after the massacre. And I just pulled down the copies of Dabik off my shelf and found this article. So many months earlier, they published the interview well before his mission. And so uh, for all the things that, uh, that an open publication does, uh, that's one of them. It gives uh, intelligence people a chance to do something if they want to pay attention. Now, the last one is, uh, is something totally different. And you can't go more low-tech than this. I mean, Gutenberg would have appreciated the chapter we have here. The print advertisement, cheap newspaper, block 
you know, block coverage, no fancy artwork, black and white. Um, sometimes uh, the advertisements by MEK were like this with a strong human appeal. Little girl writing directly to Sex State Clinton. Other times they were big text jam things where you said almost nobody but Chris Harmon is going to read this advertisement. <laughs> they ran a campaign for years. They, uh, People's Mujahideeni Kalk is a fan fascinating group which is difficult to describe ideologically. Uh, well, the State Department in their reports used to note things like um, an, an Iranian secular views, some trace of Sunni faith, uh, feminism, on and on. It's a very mysterious organization and some dismiss it as a cult. But they were on the, reason, on the list of the department's uh, list for terror groups and they were on there for many years and it's because they killed people like American military advisors, they killed a lot of Iranians, they eventually had a serious semi-conventional army which Saddam organized for them and they had all kinds of people well trained for those weapons. A lot of them were women by the way and today the organization is run by a woman. Well, especially between 05 and onward, they ran an ad campaign which had this kind of, of feature. And it was an attempt to reach Western speakers. And they had all sorts of advertisements which showed massive rallies or changes of opinion among large groups of parliamentarians in Europe or other ways in which they could say, you Americans need to delist M-E-K. We're just Iranian dissidents. We hate the Mullahs just like you guys in Washington say. And part of the campaign was very clever. Uh, they approached very serious Americans, often ones known explicitly for counterterrorism or military roles. They invited them to conferences. I'm sure this is all pretty open. And uh, they uh, let them speak. And then uh, they used their names. And so uh, we have a, a remarkable range of people who signed this kind of advertisement. And by the way, they were similarly working the halls of Congress. Now, when I was there as a staffer, I don't remember getting lobbied by them, but I may have, but a lot of staffers were, and a lot of congressmen were. And there's quite a history of MEK-sponsored letters that start, Dear Colleague, from the guy in Maine or the guy in California, and uh, they were basically saying delist PMOI. And when you have this kind of horsepower or artillery behind that kind of request, eventually you may well succeed. And so uh, I was struck then when in September 2012 they got just what they want. They were delisted. I want to emphasize this is an all whitewash or influence operations. They did all that. And they did satellite TV, and I own Maryam Rajabi's books and all the rest. They had a multimedia effort. They also changed behavior. They quit murdering civilians in large numbers. They quit sending mortar shells into Iranian border towns. And they changed their behavior, and they really went political. And I used to work a lot on how terrorist groups end, and one of the ways they often end is, is they make that political transition. Not many, but some, but often enough to keep a kind of pattern going. Uh, so PMOI's newspaper ads are remarkable. I have a whole folder of them. They were in things like the New York Times, the Washington Post. Can you imagine what a half-page ad costs in the Washington Post or the New York Times? 
They had a lot of money. French authorities have told me they're plenty worried about how much money they have. They care because they have a big compound in the Seine Valley even today. But they're off the list in Europe, they're off the list in the United States, and they're operating now as a, as a delisted former terrorist organization. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn, turn time over to you um, and see what discussion items you have. I'm just gonna close with one thought, which is that my book is really about, about violent extremism, but a lot of time in this town we're thinking about countering violent extremism, CVE. And I guess the way I'd like to put it is, uh, doing that well would depend upon many things, and above all, understanding the violent extremists. We have to understand the enemy. We have to understand the terror groups that are doing the propaganda uh, well before we can start figuring out how to shape messages that go uh, against them. We have to pay attention then to what they write and what they say and what they publish. And sometimes we just pay attention to what they do. But actually their ideas matter a great deal. And uh, we talk a lot in town about a, a war of ideas and a contest of ideas. You might have varied views on how well we do with, do with that. Uh, but we have to understand their ideas uh, before we can begin to shape a good response to their ideas. Uh, and with that, Robert, I'll stop. Are terrorist movements actually encouraging lone wolves to sort of spring forward? Yes. I, it's a good question about uh, lone wolves. When, when we see the direct uh, uh, declarations in things like the call to global Islamic resistance by al-Suri, and the, the uh, devolutions of those like uh, in Inspire. Um, they often will use, they'll use the term, but mostly because it's what we use. But their, their more common term is, in English is individual terrorist jihad, or they'll talk about uh, lone assassins. There's a kind of cult in Inspire and uh, Dabiq magazines uh, for the knife, the bladed weapon. And uh, there's even uh, graphics these magazines show, and sometimes with wildly colored pages, you know, daggers and blood dripping and all that. And it shows the great heroes of the movement. Here's a woman uh, who approached an MP on the streets of London and stabbed him uh, nearly to death. And she was captured on the spot, and she was very proud of it. You know, here's a lone assassin. Uh, with his revolver in a briefcase, and it shows him in a nice suit coming down an escalator. He's obviously pursued his target into a big building, and you name the American city. And he's going to do what a, with a revolver uh, what he can't do because he's not in Syria. And then strategically, these folks become even more important uh, because as the territory is controlled by a certain group in Iraq or Libya shrinks, or as ISIS loses its so-called caliphate, um, they explicitly say, too hard to travel now, just carry on the effort in your own place and time and at your discretion. So we're going to publish instructions. You can study uh, it does, what's it take to learn a knife attack. Not too much, uh, but uh, with a bomb or with a revolver, they'll have elaborate instructions in these magazines. And so there's a place strategically for the lone wolf, and then there's a tactical invocations to do this. Uh, now, the other thing that's fascinating for us Americans is these guys don't invent this. You know, 
you can go back to the assassins if you want in the 12th century who like the gal in London after they'd attack with a short bladed weapon just wait for the arrest or the being murdered on the spot it was a matter of pride it was a matter of courage it was a matter of showing they're not afraid of anybody that they recognize they might die for this but they're willing to do it um, and uh, a more common thing for an American would be the name Lewis Beam and he was a white separatist operating in Texas and he published a lot of things including a little newsletter called The Resistance I think and years ago he published an essay on quote leaderless resistance now he his invocations were all to the American revolutionaries and such and of course they're fighting a guerrilla war they're not murdering MPs in the streets right or British diplomats right but uh, the idea was that the more the state focuses on you, the better you'll do if you're decentralized. And the best part you can do in a completely decentralized thing is to have no network. It's to read something like Inspire and do it all by yourself and you don't tell anyone. And that's going to be the perfect thing for in terms of counterintelligence. They can't catch you when you don't share the plan. So there's very good and deadly reasons for the lone wolf theory. Yes, ma'am. Ms. Gorka. So you said um, it's important that we understand the ideology or what they're saying in order to be able to counter it. But I've been wondering lately, do we really want to engage all of their arguments? And so, you know, what I, I guess what I mean by that is I was thinking about, for example, your case with the Algerians. You know, clearly where they're arguing for independence from the French, that's an argument that the French kind of had to engage, right? I mean, that, that it's a legitimate argument, and they did engage with that argument. But what about ISIS? Do we, it's not really a legitimate argument what they're putting forth, so do we need to engage with that argument? Do we need to counter it, or are we better off simply to go after them with a kinetic solution? I think the answer is that there's no reason not to do both. Now, it's um, not easy to go after these guys kinetically. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was growing up studying terrorism, there weren't many cases of taking down individual terrorist leaders to be studied. And in fact, there were uh, executive orders that suggested to some people reading them that you couldn't even do that, and that it was a kind of struggle in peacetime, and that without wide open rules of war, you couldn't assassinate somebody like, say, Yasser Arafat. And there were a lot of people who believed that. And so we've had a long learning process to come to the stage where we're accepting a kind of challenge of war, like in the fatwas of bin Laden, like by al-Adnani, the publicist for ISIS, who read, reading, reading his, his, his 2014 declaration on the ISIS was like reading Mein Kampf. It, it was that purple and ugly. Al-Adnani is, is dead now. I, I, I don't think al-Baghdadi's dead. There's more to do. But I think that side of the fight's got to continue. But to not carry on the other side, I think, would be a blunder. If uh, the jihadis, uh, I use the term like they do in quotes, I guess, uh, as I, I should use it in quotes, have often quoted people like bin Laden saying that, that the media is half the jihad. Many of them have said that, and they put that in print, including Samir Khan, who has a super article in Inspire once on the media conflict, as it's called, 
Uh, I have a copy here somewhere if someone wants to see it. So that it isn't enough to, for them it too, it's not enough just to kill and be a lone wolf or even to build a caliphate. You have to persuade people. And in a society like ours, with, which is open and dedicated to political interchange, uh, I think some of the arguments are important. Now, I don't know that we need to engage everybody, uh, but if, um, if uh, ISIS owns uh, hundreds of square miles, is directing people to murder your citizens, and is able to put social media messages in your mailboxes to, for troops that are on bases in Hawaii, to use an example that struck home, uh, you don't really have an option, I think, for not engaging in that. So then the question turns to how good we are at it, what we should say and not say. Um, I appreciate the question, and, uh, and the reason is that there are analysts who say we ought to just not engage at all. And, and I think that that's a kind of a unilateral disarmament and it also misses some good opportunities because we should be not just criticizing people that write for Inspire, but we should be pointing to what we favor, what, what's good, what's, what advances civil society, rule of law. And when we can display the difference between an ISIS article like I showed you on slave markets and an organization in Indonesia which has 29 or 30 million devotees to Islam, and by the way, there are two. So there are almost 60 million alleged members of this mainstream two organizations in Indonesia. When we can accentuate the differences like that, I think we should, and I think it's a good thing to build up legitimate religions and a sense of civil society as opposed to terrorism. There's been a long contest by which the terrorists try to show that theirs is a form of communication. And that's why, you know, people like Arafat would say, what's wrong with you Americans? I'm just like George Washington, you know, and appear at the UN with a gun and so forth. And to the extent that relativism prevents us from distinguishing those kinds of activities, a nationalist war against soldiers and terrorism against civilians for shock purposes, then um, we're not thinking clearly and we're missing a chance to show why Washington really was a great statesman. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for coming, Dr. Harmon. And I guess congratulations first, given everything that you read, consume, look at, interact with, that you haven't been more radicalizing. <laughs> I am closely watched by the authorities. <laughs> We've noticed the yellow shirt on the ground. The, uh, media that you describe, yeah. print, human voice, video, um, interactive internet, are all things that weren't invented for or by terrorists. They're all things that we all have access to every day. So the distinction I guess I'm getting, Mark, if I'm wrong, is that it's the content and the way, the, the way these are deployed, rather, uh, and the content, which is what's distinctive. Let me ask this, uh, looking at the horizon or over the horizon, what is said to be coming technologically. Uh, are there devices? Is there a device or are there devices? Are there <coughs> media that are coming that will particularly um, benefit terrorist messaging? 
I, I don't know. I appreciate the question, and, and I'm, anyone is delight, I'd be delighted if anyone has a good idea about that. But, but I, don't, I don't know, and, and the, the thesis in the book, actually, is that what's surprising is that no matter how sophisticated they get, they keep using the old stuff. And so, the old media, or the old, the old media. media, not the old messages. That you know, my dear friend Jose Maria Cison rewrites Maoism for every era as he walks through it, and uh, and and you know, uh, it's a dust up, it's a polishing, it's a new information, it's a reinvention of themes like neoliberalism and imperialism and. Uh, American colonial mentality, the messages will will change. They're very good at that. They're very good at that, in fact. Uh, Inspire predates the uh, current concern in our country about women's rights. Uh, they openly ridiculed Anthony Weiner at least twice, cartoons and such. Um, they, they know what we care about and they're always updating. But what, what I think is fascinating is that ISIS, which can do things I don't even understand in social media, is still willing to do some of the older things like a leaflet, like a little monograph for the gals within the caliphate. And so the older technology keeps coming back. Uh, maybe Dr. Cigar can help me out. No, but it's interesting because the old media for, if you want, whether ISIS or Qaeda, it's poetry. And that you can trace the pre-Islamic poetry yeah. as a vehicle. Now, the main audience is still going to be in the Muslim world. Inspire that, that's for the West, or Muslims in the West, whatever, which is a fraction of the real audience, yeah. which is the Islamic world. And poetry isn't gonna sell in the West. Yeah. It sells enormously well as a vehicle to transmit messages. And it has since pre-Islamic Jahiliya times. Yeah. And Al-Qaeda had a, a, um, a poet laureate oh. who published. But uh, in fact, Bin Laden would uh, write poetry as well. And it's a way of conveying that message in a very to a very receptive audience that's used to that. Uh, I can underscore that because I watched the poems appear in certain issues of Inspire, and I always studied them and then wished that, like you, I could read Arabic and, and know what it would be like to see that in Arabic. I recognized that it was valuable even in English, and that it was yet another kind of medium. And it's just the oral form of the song, which I put emphasis on with the New People's Army. And I watched, and, and Dabik initially didn't have any poems. And then after a number of issues, they had a few. And, so, and, and I noticed that. And then there's a fellow at The Hague, there's a counterterrorism center at, in, in The Hague where there's a fellow named Ingram who's been doing a lot of research on the, the past efforts against violent extremism. And he, in one of his essays, talks about the great Greek war poems and the power of those poems, which are things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, which were used over centuries and centuries to, to, to instruct and to exhort. And he says we should think about things like that when we look at some of the contemporary. And, and ISIS still doesn't do much of that, 
but maybe they ought to for reasons you've given. And I noticed a few years ago that among, among their Mandarin languages efforts, they published a Chinese version of one of their, their, their favorite chants. And so those audio channels are more and more were available increasingly as ISIS went along. And uh, I don't know that uh, Al-Qaeda did that for English speakers, but ISIS was starting to do it for some of its languages. And, and that's something I, I should have mentioned, how, how many languages these guys work in. French and Turkish and Russian and German. There are many, many languages for some of these uh, booklets and newspapers. Um, in America, if we have a challenge, if, if uh, the person speaking to you right now has a, has a challenge, one of them is, uh, is ability in foreign languages. Some of these guys are really literate across a couple of fields. And it makes them very good propagandists. It makes them able to reach out. And um, yes? Another reflection about the continued use of what you're referring to as the old media. The fact is that we're all using that still, and that's why it's valuable to them, it's valuable to us, it's valuable to the world, because of the fact that the new media layers on top of the old. The printing press is not going away, uh, and it will not, the, the printed word will not go away, because you don't need an intermediary to read it. All you do is see the paper and the text, and the content is readily available electronic devices, we need a medium in which the eye can read the content, through which the eye can read the content. So the, the old medium will not go away. It hasn't gone away in our communication. It won't in the terrorist communication. Yeah. And also I think the observation about poetry is really targeted about the cultural heritages of the oral tradition that underpins many parts of the world and it's not really part of our American culture or really European in many respects, too. So it comes from the culture that, that uh, they're speaking to and with and through. Um, and so that makes it even more, I think, challenging for us to understand it as we come to it from another culture. About two years ago, Oxford published a nice little paperback by three authors, sorry, I'm forgetting the names, on, on Hezbollah's communications efforts. And uh, it includes some discussion of poetry and some examples of some Hezbollah <coughs> poems. And that's a classic multimedia organization for decades. They've had radio, they've had TV, but they continue to do press and they continue to do a sort of theme park thing like I showed you and lots of other approaches. And among those is, is been, has been poetry. So I think it's, uh, it's a good discussion here because it's an aspect of, we, we just would never conflate that with terrorist propaganda. Just as we never think of terrorist propaganda as including the books that these guys write, uh, but quite a few have, including uh, some famous IRA people. Yes? Uh, yeah, I just have a comment. And actually, I'm facing communist propaganda every day and uh, the Chinese. This is what I, you know, what you said make a great sense. What I felt is that the propaganda, whatever terrorist or communist, they always have a very big dose of passion in it. Our message, uh, we have all reasons. We have a lot of reasons. I, I remember once Rumsfeld said his uncle told him, you can persuade people either by uh, reason or by passion. 
and the passion, they, the, the propaganda always want in passion. In our, in our well, I was in America, I always thought, you know, our leadership stress, you have to be, be reason and balance, whatever, be very calm. And um, also, I think in our society, we are losing the passion over our system. We are, lo we are losing passion over democracy and freedom. That's a very major problem. You know, um, about five years or six years ago, I reread uh, Common Sense by Thomas Paine. And it's a nice example of the kind of thing that used to be taught in this country. It's incredibly lucid. The English is among the best I've ever seen in any book, but there's great passion there too. And he seemed to know, he seemed to have, that, have it all. Um, I was very interested when the Irish people once reprinted a long passage from Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And I thought, I wish we were still doing that in our graduate schools, because we could use rereading Thomas Paine. Of course, he knew it because it was a great way to, to say, here's another critic of the British, right? Uh, but Paine had something that you've described that's really central. This is why Lincoln talked about almost a kind of civic faith a kind of commitment to civil society and rule of law that really should involve some strength of feeling. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah, the few photographs that you had of Al-Sur, uh, I haven't seen them before. He, he looks Western uh, or Caucasian, not <coughs> what, what can you tell us about his background? Um, he's. Um, uh, I, I don't, I don't, um, I, I can't, I can't explain the, the remarkable hair color. Uh, it is, uh, it is interesting, but as you know, um, uh, well, why don't some, someone from, from Syria could speak better to, to the question. Um, but there's no question about his authenticity. Uh, sorry? I think he's Kurdish. Okay. Uh, one, one of our gents thinks he, he may be Kurdish. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's you know you 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 can be in the north of Italy and see a lot of blondes, and and they're still Italian, you know, and and so it it is it is very funny though because uh, you can imagine him working. He worked in multiple uh, foreign countries, uh, Andalusia and Spain and so forth, and you can imagine him passing in almost any way that he wished. Um, dedicated man of the of the underground, um, and. Um, uh, really uh, richly talented. Now, at one time, I think about 2005, he was um, he was he won't move, but he was captured by um, authorities. And uh, some say that the U.S. actually got to interrogate him, uh, but what's unclear is uh, how he got out of jail or if he did. Uh, so he, he we know he was captured. Um, we know he also knows a great deal about explosives. He was proud of that fact, and he used to be a trainer in explosives. Uh, but mostly the way I bring him to you tonight is as a thinker. Uh, how much in this town we talk about strategy and grand strategy and understanding all the elements of national power. This man's done an amazing book, and it talks about the need to be of the faith it talks about the need for education, how the fighters of the future have to have, have rich educations, and they have to avoid the problems of the past like that. It's like 
you know, you're reminded of these guys angry after Vietnam or reading Carl von Clausewitz, you know, we need to learn from what we've done wrong. And here's a whole bunch of revolutionary movements we've seen smashed. And he saw one in Syria, Hama 82. Uh, so we need, we need um, feeling, we need faith, we need broad educations, we need an understanding of strategy and allocation of things between uh, theaters, but above all, as operators. We need to know what's gonna work and what's not gonna work. Uh, because the future is ours, but we're going to have to fight for it because as we can see in a thousand places, Taliban in 01 in Afghanistan, Syrian revolutionaries, uncountered, un un uh, unnumbered things in Egypt, uh, the good guys lose all the time, and we need to study and do better. Yes, sir? Yes, do you have any comments on the separatist group in Cameroon? I'm sorry, I'm ignorant about that. Would you like to say a word? Absolutely. Uh, Cameroon, a uh, French-speaking country and uh, English-speaking country. Um, then there's English-speaking part, a group that rises up and says we have enough of French domination from the French-speaking country in Cameroon, from the French-speaking part of Cameroon. We've had enough, and on top of that, we have the oil, we have the resources, and the French-speaking country in Cameroon, part of Cameroon is using our resources. So we've had enough, and now we want to separate. Okay. And then they go on the social media, mostly Facebook and uh, and WhatsApp. Okay. And they basically, you know, stir up people. They don't want their children to go to school. Their leadership is based in Nigeria, and they've been doing that for almost two years, rather successfully, because their message goes across, and people actually obey to the signal and to their messages. May I add to that, that, that one of the, certainly one of the themes of the, the book, The Terrorist Argument, is this, this internationalism of thinking. It's so prevalent. You know, when I was in high school and we were trying to figure out what happens in Vietnam, or I go on to college and I study a little history here and there, we were repeatedly told, advised, taught, the powers of nationalism, the strength of nationalism, and one of the themes in this book, although it's not that explicit, but it's in every chapter, is the way in which so many of these things go across national lines. It can be operationally, it can be the financing of a rebellion, it can be an ideology, which over and over again comes home to me. Maoism is an internationalist ideology. And if you're just a ferocious Naxalite in your community in India, or an adherent of Sendero Luminoso in some suburb of Peru, and that's all you can think about, you miss the point. You don't understand nationalism. It's by definition an international struggle, and you're playing your part in that, and any good Leninist or Maoist is supposed to know that. So there's a lot of thought like that in the groups I've studied, or you would study, and so when you get to these internationalist jihadi types, you're looking at something that's not dissimilar you know, you're looking at a, they, you can be from Madagascar or Montana, they don't care. I have Al-Qaeda's training book, and it tells me the 15 or 16 things I need to be a really good cadre, and national origin is not in there, and any convictions about nationalism are not in there. And so one of the things, and maybe it goes back to the gentleman's question about, about communications and you know, we think of the web and the international character of, of even newspapers on the web and international broadcasting travel. 
uh, we do, we, we're going to have more trouble with an internationalist fighting ideology than we are on one strictly focused. Now, now one of those, some of those might succeed. Maybe the Catalonians are going to make it. But I doubt it because the Basques didn't and the Republic has shown great skill. It took them half century, but they suppressed the militant nationalist movement while accepting a moderate nationalist movement among Basque people. And so Spain survived that one, but there'll be some other countries that can't meet that challenge. But I think most commonly when the fighting's going, it'll be ISIS, it'll be Al-Qaeda, it'll be this kind of group. Um, it'll be New People's Army, which only fights in the Philippines, but has a leader in Holland, you know. It'll be a communist, an anarchist. What borders have they? The international anarchists move so conveniently between Zurich, London, Paris. They catch you in Berlin, no problem. You move to New York, you got buddies at a, some anarchist newspaper, you go to work there. Um, they, there's, I think that um, we have to understand how many of the doctrines in inspiring terrorism are internationalist in character, and that's one of the reflections I have on your contribution. Yes, sir. I can think of uh, a number of benign historical events that were characterized by tactics that perfectly fit your description of terror. And I don't know if you want to distinguish them. The, the three most conspicuous are the, the, uh, the, the French resistance in World War II, the struggle in the Italian Social Republic by the people of the, the Kingdom of Italy against the fascist Social Republic, and the uh, Italian Carbonari struggle in Milan and, and Lombardy and Veneto to take them away from Austria and make them part of the reunited Italy. These are all three benign movements that are characterized primarily by, by terrorist tactics. Do you consider them terrorists? I'd like to um, distinguish uh, terrorism again from guerrilla war. I made two comments in that way. I'm now going to risk belaboring it because. Uh, what you've, what you've raised is important. The best single definition I know is from an old think tank. And uh, I, I argue that uh, we're, we're, we worry too much over definitions. We've had a couple of good ones. The US government has a couple of good ones. There is one in the United Nations. It's not completely accepted, but it's embedded in the Treaty on Finance, perfectly good. The best I know is the following. Terrorism is the deliberate and systematic murder, maiming, or menacing of the innocent to inspire fear for political purposes. And what I would say is there's a lot of guerrilla wars that don't fit that definition, uh, many, many of them. And uh, it could be, uh, and it could be something as, as modern as the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico. They made violence for a few days or weeks and then they moved onto the web, revolutionary approach and propagandized and did labor organization and all that and no violence and that was by no means a terrorist organization after the first weeks and there are many many things which uh, for example the French resistance did against uh, Nazi occupation which should not be classified as terrorism at all because it confounds the notion of legitimate resistance against soldiers from a foreign country uh, with the murder of innocence for your own shock purposes. Robert? Great. Thank you so much.